on Thursday of this past week, like a lot of you, I saw some great things, absolutely wonderful things. One of those, boy, it just blessed my heart, was my wife and, and my daughter in the kitchen cooking. That was good. I thought to myself, wow, I've waited for this day when Katie would be in there throwing down with her mom. And it, oh, man, they made a buffet for us. It was unspeakable. Absolutely loved it. So the boys and I thought to ourselves, we need to be of some use as well. So let's go hunting. And we did. So the three of us went out to see what we could find. And, and we found absolutely nothing because that's the way our big game season's been going. So Nick and I, my oldest son, decided Thursday afternoon, tomorrow, we're just going to bag big game hunting. It hadn't been working, so let's just not go. And we decided to go duck hunting instead. And what a day it was. We put in up by the, the dam, float hunting down the river. And for the first mile and a half, two miles, there was another boat that was tormenting us. Now, I thought it was fishermen because I wanted to have the best kind of thinking in, in mind. Tina believes it might have been fish and game. Now, if it was fish and game, that means it could have been Jared Lampton. And if Jared is in church today, I got some words for him because he was destroying our duck hunting. He stayed about 200 yards down river from us the whole time. And just when we would come up on where the ducks should be, he would fire up the motor on his boat and go spinning around and the ducks would fly out. And so nothing worked for us until we came around the, the point of one little island. When we came off that island right in the grass, there were some mallards. And this is what we've been waiting for. They rose up out of the grass. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. As the ducks came up out of the grass, they were backlit with the sky behind them. Nick shot. One of them fell out in the, the middle of the river. The dog launched out of the boat. It looked like something you would see on ESPN Outdoors. Everything was lined up perfectly. It was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Now, I know there's a lot of people in this room that cannot see the beauty of a duck, but I'm telling you, the duck was beautiful. The whole thing was spectacular. It was the greatest thing I saw all day long, with the possible exception of the, the table when we got back on Friday night, and there was turkey and noodles, and well, anyway, I won't even go into that, just leftovers. Greatest thing I saw all week long, really, absolutely beautiful. I'm curious to know what you would say the, the greatest thing you saw all week long might have been. Now, if you were in church with us last night, we had a crowd that allowed us to go around the room and answer that question, but today that's not possible. So here's what I'd like for us to do. Would you tell the person sitting next to you what the greatest thing was that you saw all week long? Greatest thing that you saw. Just turn and tell somebody. Phil, Susie, you're sitting over here by yourself, so scoot over there by Deanie and tell Deanie greatest thing that you saw all week long. And everybody else, just turn to the person next to you. All right. There is a reason that I ask that question, and hopefully it will become evident to you as we go through the message. I've been preaching a, a series of sermons called Hard to Believe for the past couple of months. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. Today we're going to wrap that up. But as I was getting ready for it this week, I just sat with my computer and thought through that concept of hard to believe and went back over in my mind some of the things that we've been talking about and then decided that I wanted to look at some things that are not hard for me to believe at all. And I just began to make a list. I want to share with you 10 of those things. Now, as we go through these, you'll notice that at the end of each one of them, there is a biblical reference. If you are familiar with your Bibles, then these will ring true for you. You might find yourself thinking, I know exactly where that's at. 10 things that are not hard for me to believe. Number one, I believe that God created the world in a seven literal day period. There was morning and evening on each day. 
Number two, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that Jesus died on a Roman cross and three days later rose from the dead. I believe it so strongly that without this belief, my entire life would be in vain. I believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God and is complete. It holds the key to piercing my soul, dividing my joints from the marrow. I believe that the Holy Spirit has come to live this life on earth with me. He is the great comforter that Jesus promised. He convicts me of my sin, pushes me towards righteousness, and causes me to long for the day of judgment because it is there that I will find the victory. I believe we can experience victory over sin as we submit to God and resist the devil, though true victory is reserved for the days in which we walk face to face with the Lord. I believe in the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because I am crucified in Christ, these things live within me. I believe that Jesus is coming back again. His coming will be announced with a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise to meet Him first. Then the rest will form a great company with the heavenly host. I believe heaven will be the best of God and will be the best because of God. Streets of gold, gates of pearls, and the glory of the Lord, all things I can only imagine today but will spend forever exploring. I believe there are two worlds around us right now, one we can see and one we can't. But as we grow closer to the Lord, the one we can begins to stretch into the one we can't, and the view is spectacular. I want you to listen to that last one one more time. I believe there are two worlds around us right now, one we can see and one we can't. But as we grow closer to the Lord, the one we can begins to stretch into the one we can't, and the view is spectacular. It is hard for some people to believe that there are two worlds. It's difficult for them to believe because they've never had their eyes open to that concept. It's hard for them to believe because Jesus is not real to them. But for those of us that are believers, that's not difficult to believe at all. It's not difficult to understand that we really do live in two worlds. The one that we stand on right now, the terra firma that our feet are on, it's the smallest of the two. And it is wrapped up in this other world. When we begin to understand that we are living in both places, we will begin to understand that God is in both of those places. And He wants to be with us, whether we are in this world or whether we are in the next, whether we have one foot in this world and one foot in the next. It does not matter. God's desire is an intimate relationship with us, a personal relationship with us. And when we are living in both of those worlds, there is a power that is afforded to us that truly is beyond all imagination. I want us to take a look at those two worlds today. It's going to be an interesting study, that I promise you. And it's going to be somewhat stretching for some of you, so you're going to have to stay with me. Because of those things, I want us to pray together, and then we're going to just get into God's Word. Father in heaven, the truth of the two worlds is mind-blowing for some of us, staggering for some of us. It leaves us wondering about all of your goodness, leaves us wondering about who you are and how we can know you intimately and fully. So, Father, I'm praying that you'll reveal that to us today, that you'll show us what's possible when we understand this. Praying, Lord, that you'll make me a communicator. Help me to get out of the way that your word might speak and your spirit might teach. And I'm praying, Father, that we'll begin to live expectantly, knowing that you are with us, 
knowing that you long to be right beside us. And Father, it's my prayer that we will long to do the same with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Philip Yancey has done a lot of study on this concept of the two worlds. He's written a couple books about it. He is a wonderful author, not my favorite speaker, but a wonderful author. And he's going to help me out with quite a bit of the teaching this morning. So I want to give credit to him for that. And if you're curious about more of this, I can direct you to some of his writings after we're done. But one of the things that he has really studied is a cultural phenomenon that's going on in our world and really within our country today. He calls it the revolutionist mentality. Or I'm sorry, the reductionist mentality revolutionist. The reductionist mentality. That's Yancey's term for it. Now, if you study history and the history of our country, you know that we've gone through things like the Industrial Revolution. That's where revolutionists come from. We went through the Industrial Revolution, and then we've gone through a technological revolution. We've gone through all kinds of different things. It is Yancey's belief that we are currently in this reductionist stage. And here's what he means by that. We are taking things that have already been created things that have already been discovered, and we are breaking them down into the smallest pieces that we possibly can for one purpose, and one purpose only, that we might understand them in their entirety. Now, Yancey would say that we do that with all kinds of different things. We do that with climate. We do that with DNA. We do that with inventions. We have done that with technology. We've taken all these things and we have peeled them apart to get them into the smallest, most digestible form we can so that we can truly understand everything about them. Now, he would say in all of his writings on this that the question that people have when they begin reducing things is how? How does this work? How does this all come together? What is it that drives whatever it is that you're looking at? And it really makes sense when you stop and think about it. People do reduce all kinds of different things wanting to know how they work. The very first reductionist I believe I ever met was my brother. When he and I were growing up, we would get Christmas presents at the exact same time. I would be thrilled to have the new toy and I would want to play with it. He would want to tear his apart and see how it worked. That was just kind of his mentality. Anybody else in this room have that type of a mentality? I remember when he got his first car, a 1970 Chevy Nova, he wanted to reduce it. Dad said, you're not going to reduce it. Dad didn't want to spend a lot of time with him mechanicking on the car, so he said, you leave it alone. That was a, really a challenge for my brother in those days. So one day I came home from school, or I'd been out and about in the neighborhood, I don't remember exactly what it was, but Rick was at home, and so was his car. Dad was at work. Rick had reduced the motor and placed it all over the front yard. I thought, this is going to be good. So I went inside, poured myself a lemonade, found a lawn chair and a shade tree, and waited for Dad to get home. And I don't mind telling you, I was not disappointed. World War III started right in our front yard. Rick was reducing the motor. The problem that he had was that he couldn't put it back together. So he needed dad, and dad was not thrilled to be in that situation. Well, that was this reductionist mentality. When people begin reducing, and they begin taking all of these things apart, and they're driven by the question of how does it work, what they're really doing is acknowledging other people's power, and then hoping to acknowledge their own power, their own strength. That's been going on for a long time. 
If you go back into the Old Testament, in fact, get into the first book of the Old Testament, all you have to do is go to Genesis chapter 4, and you will begin to see the power that each one of Cain's children had. It's recorded in Scripture. One of them was good at this, one of them was good at that, and it's all written down right there in the Bible. They began to use their power, their abilities, their gifts to accomplish different things. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, which, by the way, is after the flood, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, you see people harnessing their own power, and it's not good. Why don't you turn there with me real quick? I'll show you what happens. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. When men began to understand what they were capable of, when they were able to understand their own power, their own strength, you see what the byproduct was. They began to build a tower wanting to reach the heavens that they might become like God, that they might take his seat, that they might dethrone him. That was all the motivating thoughts that were going through their mind. The reductionists do the exact same thing. We want to control everything that we can. We want to understand everything that we can, that we might always have our own strength and always live within our own power. But here's what they're finding. As they try to reduce everything, they're creating more questions than they are finding answers. With every step in it, the reductionists are saying, there are things that we cannot explain. If you take something like climate, every time they peel away a layer of it, they find something else that they cannot understand. It's interesting to me that yesterday, or Friday it was, yesterday was the article in the newspaper, we launched a rover to the planet Mars. Now that was our ninth attempt to try to get something there. One of the others has succeeded. But here we are sending something again. And in the article that I read yesterday, they were saying that they're hoping that this rover landing on the planet Mars will help us understand a little bit more about what's going on with our climate. $253 billion we're spending on this that we might be able to reduce weather patterns to something that we can understand. Every time we turn around, we're trying to answer more and more and more questions. DNA fits in that exact same category. They have learned a lot about DNA, but with each step, they're finding more questions. Every time they reduce it, there are more questions that are popping up. I believe that every facet, if I understand this right, every facet of DNA has 96,000 pieces to it. They don't understand even a, a smattering of those things. The scientists that are trying to explore it are finding themselves driven by this question, how? And they've gotten themselves into a bad place. 
Yancey would actually say that there are two really horrible things that are happening because of this reductionist mentality. The first one is this. We are no longer creating anything. We are focused on what has already been created. Because we are tearing everything apart that other people have already done, even people that have gifts to create and build and engineer are not using those. They are simply looking at what other folks have already done. Now, if you were watching Black Friday specials, you could actually see that happening. The Kindle Reader came out. And after the Kindle Reader came out, another reader came out called the Nook. And all of that was a precursor to the iPad. Somebody has an idea, uh, somebody else will reduce that idea and reproduce it on their own. It happens all the time in technology. It happens all the time in the realm of computers. People are reducing other people's ideas and reproducing them. They're not creating new things on their own. They're simply stealing ideas from other people. Hollywood is actually a picture of that right now as well. The greatest money makers that Hollywood has is in reproductions of old movies. Have you noticed that? That's where they're even going. The arts are saying, let's just redo something that somebody else has done because they've reduced them down to a place that they can reproduce them. So Yancey says, nobody's creating anything anymore. Nobody's using the gifts that they are supposed to use. And worse, people have become very focused on our power, our ability, and we have forgotten the Creator. We're paying attention only to ourselves. Now let me illustrate for you a couple of different stories that help us understand how that works. There was a missionary named Elizabeth Erickson who spent a, a lot of her life in the jungles of South America. She had ministered to the Indians that were there and loved them with all of her heart. And there was one particular lady that had gotten really close to her. And Erickson wanted to bring her back to the United States, hoping to stretch her vision, hoping to show her things that she had never seen before, things that would cause her world to just grow exponentially. So she did. She made it possible to bring this lady back with her, and she took her to New York City. They did everything. They went to the Broadway shows. They looked at all of the lights. They went into the stores. And in every step of the way, Erickson had to explain to this lady what she was seeing. It was so far beyond her scope. She had to explain cars to her. She had to explain the lights that were flashing on the buildings to her. She had to explain skyscrapers to her. She had to explain everything. And through all of their travels through New York City, this lady from the jungles of South America never said a word. She never gave her any idea of what she was thinking. So finally, Erickson took her up onto the observation deck of the Eiffel Tower, and they are the Eiffel. I just skipped a continent. Empire State Building. So they're up on the, the observation deck of the Empire State Building, and they're looking over the edge, and if you've ever been there, you know what it looks like. The cars look really small, the people look really small, but they're still visible. So they're looking over the side, and, and they're seeing the taxi cabs running all over the place, and the people walking everywhere, and she thought she's just going to be amazed by this. So they stepped back just a little bit, and Erickson looked at her and said, so tell me, what are you thinking? And this is what the lady said. She pointed at a white spot on one of the bricks, and you can imagine what that white spot was. And she said, what bird did that? Now, she'd been explaining everything else to her, but the only thing that really registered in this lady's mind from the jungle is what the bird left behind. What bird did that? It was something that she could connect with, something that was familiar to her, something that rang true in her mind. What bird did that? because her world was focused on the creator, not the created. 
She wanted to know about God's creation, not man's creation. That's pretty good. Soren Kierkegaard actually tells this parable, and it's a, it's a good one as well. There was a wealthy man a number of years ago, a wealthy man, who just believed that he was incredibly powerful. His money had created that belief for him. He had a carriage driver that was a peasant. That peasant always rode up on the, the top of the carriage, and the rich man always rode inside the carriage, and they traveled in the daylight, and they traveled at night. And one particular night, as they were traveling, the rich man was in the carriage and reading, going through all kinds of different things, underneath the artificial light of a lantern. Now, because that lantern was burning inside the carriage, the only thing that he could see was what was inside the carriage. He couldn't see anything outside. But the peasant, on the other hand, riding on top of the carriage, behind the horse, the only lights that he saw were the lights of the stars in the sky. Kierkegaard would ask this question, which one of them was the luckiest? Was it the wealthy man that was reading all of his important documents underneath artificial light, unable to see what God had created? Or was it the peasant who had very little, but he had the ability to see the stars that God had created? Most of us would say it was the peasant. Most of us, if we were really honest, would say the peasant was the one that was lucky and fortunate because his world allowed him to focus on the creator rather than the created. These reductionists reduce everything down to such a place that they forget about who God is. They live only in this world, paying no attention to the next. They live only in this world with no idea whatsoever that there is one that surrounds our world much bigger than anything that they have ever experienced. That's what the reductionists are up against. And if they're not being driven by the question how, then it is the question why that really captures their attention. Why do people do certain things? Why do some actions cause certain reactions? When they look at people, the reductionist, as they're trying to figure out why they do things, have actually come to this conclusion. And this would come again from the scientists that study DNA. They would teach that there is a selfish gene inside of every person, and it is wrapped up within our DNA. And that selfish gene motivates everything that we do, whether it is good or whether it is bad. The why question gets answered in this scientific realm, saying that it is all about us. And I do not buy into that. Not even a little bit. Now they can pick apart all these different things and they can even dive into the the hearts and the minds and the souls of people and believe that they have found a scientific answer within DNA. And I would tell them that the Bible says it's something totally different. I want to show it to you. We're going to go to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Solomon is the author of this book, wisest man to ever live. If anybody understood this stuff, it was Solomon. Listen to what he writes. He has made everything beautiful in its time, speaking of God. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. If you were to reduce the thinking of a Christian, of a believer, and you were to ask why they do certain things, I believe Solomon just gave us the answer. Because God has placed within the heart of every man a desire for eternity. An understanding, if you will, of both worlds. The world that we live in and the world that surrounds us. And for the believer, there is an intricate understanding that we currently live in both. One affects the other. And there is great victory in that. 
There is great struggle as well, no question about it, but there is great victory in it. And when we have placed within us a desire for eternity, we find that that also brings about a desire for an intimate, loving, growing relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ. That's how it works. And when both of those worlds collide, when they are close together, and we understand that both of them are there, real intimacy is possible. It really is. That's where we begin to focus on the Creator rather than the created. That's when we begin to acknowledge what God has done in our lives. More than likely, when you answered that question, what was the greatest thing that you saw all week long? At some point, you could find it being directed back to the Creator rather than the created. The gifts of God, the goodness of God. That's an understanding of both worlds and how they intersect. So let me show you what the Bible actually says about both of these worlds. We're going to start with just the declaration that they exist. Let's go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 38. Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is, a tiny little glimpse of the fact that there are two worlds and nothing can separate one from the other in the believer's life, in the Christian's heart. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from that intimate, growing, loving relationship with God. Nothing, not in this world or the next. But if you read it for what it really is, Paul is saying, and I love the way the Bible does this, Paul is saying both worlds exist. Pay attention to them. And it's just this little tiny glimpse into it, almost a little blip on the screen. And if you don't read this passage critically, you would miss it. But if you read it with discerning eyes, you see that both of these worlds really do exist. They exist not just within the realm of creation and not just within the realm of our relationship with God, but both of these worlds exist around us all of the time. For the believer, you can see it. For the non-believer, you can't. That's part of the significance of spiritual warfare. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul again writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. One verse in the midst of this wonderful teaching of the armor of God, and Paul has described the fact that there are two worlds, and we wrestle against them, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They exist in the realm of creation, Romans chapter 8. They exist within the realm of spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6. And both of those worlds exist even within the realm of your prayer life. Do you realize that? Both realms exist even within your prayer life. Let's go to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel's been praying, asking God for direction asking God to grant to him answers that he really needed. It was Daniel's job to direct the people, to tell them what was coming, and he needed help. He needed something from the Lord. So Daniel prayed, and he'd been praying, kept on praying, for at least three weeks, three weeks. And it seemed to Daniel like God couldn't hear him. 
No answers were forthcoming. He was getting absolutely nothing from God. You ever felt like that? You've been praying and praying and praying and you feel like you're getting nothing from God? I have. Anybody else? Other people have. You know what it's like. Your prayers have been hindered. Sometimes, folks, sometimes your prayers are hindered because of the other world. Listen to what happens. We're in Daniel chapter 10, picking up in verse 12. Man has brought the answer to Daniel. It's his answer to his prayer. It's obvious to Daniel that this man has come out of the heavenly realm. Listen to what happens. Verse 12. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come." For three weeks, the angel that was carrying the answer to Daniel's prayer was hung up in heaven. He was in the midst of battle. He would say, with the prince of Persia, the king of Persia, those are other names for Satan. Satan did not want the answer to this prayer to arrive with Daniel. So he got into a fight with the angel that was carrying it. Michael, the archangel, actually had to get involved in it. He came and brought all of his power to put an end to the whole struggle so that three weeks later, Daniel might receive the answer to his prayer. I love that story. I really do. Folks, it helps us understand both worlds. Sometimes your prayers are hung up in the other world. Satan doesn't want you to get them. Both of those worlds exist, and the one that we're standing on is wrapped up in the other world. We have to understand that. The Bible teaches that both of these places exist. They really do. And once we begin to get our arms around that, it all begins to make sense to us. It really does. In fact, I would tell you that there are some physical descriptions of what that world might look like. Let's go to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 84. The psalmist writes an interesting description of both. Verse 1, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Do you see the the crossover? The psalmist, as he writes about the dwelling place of God, begins to talk about the sparrows that have found a nest at the altar of God. There's a crossover within these. The psalmist goes on. Skip over with me to verse 8. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Both worlds. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Don't you love the way the psalmist boils it down? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the throne room of God than to be a king anyplace else. That's an understanding of both worlds and an understanding of what is really important. It's an understanding of the victory 
It's an understanding of the relationship, an understanding of the intimacy. It's an understanding that our relationship, intimate relationship with God, is fueled by something that so many people miss. It is fueled by the love of God. I want to take you to the New Testament now. The book of 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, but the letter of John. 1 John. If you're wondering how to find that, if you go to the book of Revelation and turn back to the left, just a few books, you'll run into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're in chapter 3. Verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now John's talking about both worlds. You are a child of God. Today, a child of God. There are people that do not understand that. There are people that do not understand your relationship with Him. And John says the reason they don't understand it, the world, the people that only understand this world, they don't know Him. Because they don't know Him, they don't know about your otherworldly reactions and thoughts. Have you ever found yourself questioned by people that are close to you because of your faith? They look at you and think you're nuts. Why would you do that? And all you can think is because I'm a Christian. How many of you have actually been questioned that way? Just throw your hands up. A number of you have had people that have not understood it. John says the reason that they don't understand it is because they live in this world only. They do not understand Jesus. Moving on. Verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we'll be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. A glimpse into the other world. The time will come when we will completely, totally understand Jesus. We will have complete knowledge and complete understanding in the next world. Right now, we're growing closer and closer to it. And as you grow closer and closer to the Lord, then there is a blending of these two worlds. And the one that we can't see becomes a lot more visible to us. It really does. And that's all part of this growing process with the Lord, fueled by a wonderful concept that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's love. And it's the love that God had for us when He sent His Son to die for us. It's the love that we have for other people. When we understand that type of love, really it becomes very clear what happens in the other world. It's almost a a transparent wall between the two. Listen to what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've experienced that type of love. Hopefully you are learning how to extend it to other people. It's pretty plain what that love should be like, and it is only possible, it is only possible through God. That's how we find a love that never fails. When we do... There's a power associated with it. A power that helps us understand both worlds. There were a group of people that followed Jesus everywhere. They were actually called disciples. Not the disciples, not the apostles. They were called disciples because they were believers in Him. 
Jesus sent them out, gave them some marching orders, told them what he wanted them to do. He wanted them to go into all the world and do some certain things. What he did not tell them is that their actions would affect both worlds. I want you to see what happens. We're in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, turn there with me. If you brought a Bible with you, turn to the Gospel of Luke with me. Even if you haven't been following along in the other places, you need to see this. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, even if it's broccoli. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, those are the marching orders. Jesus just gave them to these 72 disciples. He said, I want you to go out, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to perform miracles. I want you to do all kinds of different things in my name. And they did. And we don't know how long they were gone. That's one of the, the fun things about the Bible. You, you read things like this, and you don't know how long they were gone. But we know they came back to Jesus. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Jesus is still talking to him. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now go out and do it and come back. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The actions of those 72 on this earth impacted what happened in the heavenly realm. Did you catch that? Jesus said, when you were doing what you were doing, when you were doing what I told you to do, when you were performing those miracles in my name, when you were loving those other people and you were doing it to my glory, I saw, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He was boastful and he was proud and he thought he would have the victory, but your love brought his defeat. That's what happens when we understand both worlds. What we do here impacts the heavenly realm. And Satan fell from heaven. That is beautiful description, wonderful description of what happens in those moments when your life that has been impacted by the love of God begins to impact other people with the love of God. Satan falls. And he has no power. And he has no strength. Your actions on this earth impact the other realm, the heavenly realm. It is real. As we grow closer to God, we begin to see that other realm. We begin to live in that other realm. We begin to affect that other realm. That's pretty powerful teaching. A couple weeks ago, we did a simulcast from John Eldridge dealing with his new book called Beautiful Outlaw. It's a great book, wonderful book. If you have not read it, 
I encourage you to get your hands on it. You can order it from Amazon.com. You can also go to RansomHeartMinistries.com and they will send it to you. And Phil, if I understand right, they'll send you two copies if you order one. Is that correct? And I believe they still are. If you order one copy, they'll send you another one so that you can give it away to somebody else. That's John Eldridge's new teaching on Jesus. And it's, it's just fantastic. He helps you understand all kinds of different things about who the Lord is. And maybe he'll help you see some things that you've never seen before. Again, the name of the book is Beautiful Outlaw. And you can get it at RansomHeartMinistries.com or Amazon.com. Check those out. But at the end of the book... After Eldridge has talked about going out and giving all kinds of interviews, talks on this book that he has written, one of the interviewers actually looks at him and asks a question that he was not prepared for. The interview looks at Eldridge and, and says, almost as a, an afterthought, what are you looking forward to the most with Jesus? What are you looking forward to the most with Jesus? Eldridge wasn't sure how to answer that. Here he's been talking on who Jesus Christ is, and he's been talking about this wonderful, loving, intimate relationship with him because of who he is. And he never stopped to think about what he was looking forward to the most about Jesus. Anticipation is such an interesting thing when we begin to harness it. I'm a, a person who lives in anticipation. I look forward to all kinds of different things. I look forward to going home at night. I look forward to spending time with my wife and my children. I look forward to big events. I look forward to small events. I, I love to anticipate things. That's, that's a good question. What are you looking forward to the most with Jesus? Eldridge came up with an answer, and I'm not going to share it with you so that if you're reading the book, I don't spoil that for you. But after I heard his answer, I found myself faced with the same question. What am I looking forward to the most with Jesus? And I found myself thinking about both these worlds. And I'm not going to share my answer with you because it's my answer and it's none of your business. And I'm not going to ask you to share yours with me, but I am going to ask you to entertain that same question. What are you looking forward to the most with Jesus? I don't mean after death. I mean today tomorrow a lot of us don't anticipate anything from the Lord because we're not understanding the way these two worlds intersect the way they collide we have to figure that out and then begin anticipating looking forward to things with the Lord spend some time thinking about that question hopefully you'll come up with a good answer if you want to share it with me you can call me, email me, text me, whatever I'd, I'd be curious to hear, but I know you probably won't want to because I'm not willing to share mine with you. <laughs> That's okay. Figure it out for yourself. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray together. So, Father, I know that it's hard for a lot of people to believe that both these worlds exist. The Bible teaches it. You teach it. You even told 72 of the disciples how their actions impacted both worlds. Grateful for those teachings. It's my prayer that you help us hold on to them. It's my prayer that through those teachings, you'll give us greater understanding. And Father, in greater understanding comes greater responsibility. Help us accept that responsibility. And help us to live in both places. Never allowing one to be separated from the other. Lord, would you allow us to spend the rest of our life blending both worlds till such a day that we come to stand before you and it 
It just seems like nothing more than a step. Would you let that be true for every one of us? In Jesus' name, amen.